Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be doing a Stuff to Blow Your Mind take on ancient tombs. One really fascinating, amazing, interesting ancient tomb in particular. Uh, but I wanted to start off by talking about ancient tombs in general, because my main point of contact with ancient tombs, I have to be honest, is not through real archaeology, but is through like movies and all oh, yeah. the the types of ancient tombs that you get a curse by going into. The kind of ancient tomb that can serve as a, a suitable backdrop for a swashbuckling adventure. Yes, that has guardians of some kind that mm-hmm. will like come to life and attack you with with creatures that they command maybe or that wield, you know, ancient axes uh, and they've got some kind of animal head or something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, or how about the ones that make you sick, like mm-hmm. they give you a disease or just generally are full of booby traps. Like, you know, they're going to have spikes rolling out at you. And don't forget the curse. you got to have a good curse in there. Did I not say a curse? I thought I did. Well, you said sickness, right? Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, I mean, that can be part of the curse. But, yeah, we we have all these sort of fantastic ideas of what these tombs should be. And at the same time, I feel like there's this trap we may fall into of just saying, oh, well, of course, ancient peoples created these mega projects. They made pyramids and large scale tombs and they went to ridiculous lengths to uh, preserve the dead. And that's that's just what ancient people did. And we we lose sight of the enormity of the thing Uh, and, and we we don't necessarily engage in the the thinking of of these people what was going through their minds why did all of this collective effort go into the the creation of artificial mountains and uh, and and models of the underworld and in some cases like for instance we've we've touched on this before the ancient egyptians you get the feeling of a spaceship yeah. it's the feeling of a of a vessel that is going to take the the physical remains of the dead king and his objects or representations of those objects, in some cases the bodies of of loved ones uh, with them into the afterlife. Yeah, and of course what's worth looking at as well is not just what were they thinking, though that is fascinating, but also how did they do it? Sometimes yeah. these ancient tombs are technological marvels. It's bizarre to think that people would create funerary structures and storage for dead bodies that was, you know, the the pinnacle of technological achievement at the time, like maybe even beyond buildings that people would actually live in. Yeah, it, it, and we don't have as much to compare this to today. Like, I've been to Nicolas Cage's pyramid in New Orleans. Uh, he's not in it yet. <laughs> Wait, uh, what? What are you talking about? Uh, he has a, a, a pyramid-shaped uh, uh, Tomb prepared for himself uh, at, in a cemetery in Are New Orleans. Are you messing with me? No, it's it's actually it's legitimate. Yeah. So a cemetery in New Orleans mm-hmm. has a pyramid. Yes. It's prepared for Pharaoh Cage <laughs> when he de- when he meets his demise. Correct. Yes. And he's going to go there and be interred. That's uh, that's the plan. And then when the flood comes, what he'll get washed out and. <laughs> Uh, he's gonna be fine. He'll be in the pyramid. I assume there it's it's there are gonna be provisions in there. Everything Nicolas Cage will need in the afterlife. Oh man, can you just imagine canopic jars full of Nicolas Cage guts? <laughs> I am now. I am now. So in this episode, we are going to venture into Chinese history. We are in fact going to look at one of the most important figures in Chinese history. Uh, a little bit about his life. 
uh, but then also a, a fair bit about his death and his preparations for death. Right. So the subject of today's episode is the tomb of the first Chinese emperor, Qin Shi Huang. And Qin Shi Huang is, is an interesting figure in history, but I would venture that he has the coolest, weirdest, most fascinating tomb of any person who ever lived. Would you agree? I would I would definitely agree. Now, granted, it part of it, I think, is you grow up knowing so much about the pyramids that you're, you're kind of dull to the pyramids after a while. So it's difficult to compare anything uh, to those massive works. But this is incredible. This is this is I feel at least on par with those creations. Well, first, let's take a look at who was Qin Shi Huang. Right. And, and we should we should take a moment to just sort of ground this in Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I realize Chinese dynastic uh, secession can be confusing uh, for many people. Uh, but here are the basics, and this will get us up to uh, the time period we need uh, for this episode. Okay. So the first Chinese dynasty was the Xia dynasty from 2070 to 1600 BCE. It comes first, but it's also largely mythological with some early Bronze Age evidence. Okay. And then comes the Shang Dynasty, uh, which was long considered apocryphal as well, but historians now correlate it with oracle bone writings. And this period takes us up through roughly 1123 BCE with the Zhou Dynasty. In China's first millennium BC, this was a time of conflict, especially two periods known as the spring and autumn. That went uh, 722 through 481 BCE and the warring states period, which went 475 through 221 BCE. Okay, but by the end of the warring states period, we're into the third century BCE. And then at the end of the warring states period... Uh, the, the the Qin dynasty uh, picks up. Uh, this is when uh, the, the Qin kingdom conquers other central Chinese states and becomes the first imperial dynasty under Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of the Qin. And technically, he becomes the first emperor uh, at a very young age. He is he is he is born into this conquered realm essentially, and be, becomes uh, the young king of the first empire. Now, not to pick on him in particular, you just never think it's that great an idea when somebody becomes an absolute absolute ruler when they're a teenager. Yeah, it, uh, it, it generally it's a red flag when you're reading history books. You're like, oh, this this guy's starting young. He's either going to be great uh, or terrible. And well, I think this is a case where you can realize that someone can be great and terrible. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's it's kind of the, the thing that emperors do. Right. Uh-huh. And of course, he would be a a pivotal figure here. He would begin a line of rulers that would continue until 1912 C.E. Now, that being said, uh, his particular dynasty would be very short-lived because um, in the first of many peasant uprisings to echo through Chinese history, uh, Lu Bang rose up and conquered China to found the Han Dynasty in 206 BCE, only 15 years later uh, after his death. And uh, and this would last for some 400 years. This was, the, I mean, the Han Dynasty that would be, Tremendously important. It's why you call the, the the major ethnic group in China the Han people. Okay, so Qin Shi Huang was incredibly powerful in his time, but this very short rule. 
Right. It's almost as if you looking at it from a historical perspective, he he like rocketed into history and just made a beeline for his death. Basically. And we do have to stress, too, it's like he was not a 13-year-old warlord per se. Uh, he was he, – he arrived upon the throne uh, thanks to the, the military prowess of his family, of his father and grandfather in particular. Right. Now, I, I said that about the view of history oh, moving yes. toward his death, not because all he did was die. He did a lot. Mm-hmm. But because the main thing that we can now see the remains of him is this massive monument to his dead body. That's right. Now, of course, it wasn't the only uh, thing he accomplished uh, in his life. Uh, Here are just a few of the key points. We're not going to do a complete biography of the man, but in 214 BCE, he indentured thousands, some 300,000 men, I believe, uh, uh, laborers to link existing city walls into the one great wall. Mm -hmm. Uh, On top of that, he oversaw vast public works projects such as the Stone Cattle Road that bridged essential trade cities over the mountains. Uh, he also unified currency, measurements, and this is key uh, in relation to our other episode this week, written language. And all of this helped to stitch together a cohesive state that exists to this day. Uh, on top of that, and we'll get into this in a bit, he also longed for immortality. And, of course, he constructed one of the greatest tombs in, hist- in human history containing uh, over 7,000 soldiers uh, that we refer to as the Terracotta Army near uh, uh, Cheyenne. However, as John Key points out in his book, China, A History, which came out in uh, 2009, we have to be careful not to overstate his influence. Right. So his his dynasty would last barely a generation, and and everything would have to be basically put back together again uh, by the Han Dynasty. And plus, his influence only covered, uh, as, as Key points out, core China and that not entirely. Now, in his life, uh, the emperor came to know both the anxiety of one who holds the highest level of power and the fears of all who occupy a mortal form. Uh, Key points out that uh, he may have been spooked by a couple of failed assassination attempts. Yeah, that'll get to you. Yeah, and uh, and he was he was already... Uh, master of, quote, all under heaven, so he decided to become a master over death as well. This seems like a very natural move that comes to warlords who have conquered all their enemies. Yeah. Uh, like, once you have secured your rule, the next thing you move on to is the enemy no one has yet defeated, death itself. Yeah, how not to die, how not to end. Um, he ended up removing himself from public sight. He sought the secret of eternal life. Death was made a taboo subject, and to speak it uh, in his presence was punishable by death. He summoned wizards and holy men from across the lands and spared no expense in creating the elixirs that they prescribed him. Uh, some argue that the mercury poisoning from these elixirs uh, might have actually uh, hastened his demise. Oh, and there will be more about that later on. Now, according to the stories about Qin Shi Huang's search for immortality, he was truly committed to it. Like he sent expeditions, right? Oh, yeah. He he dispatched uh, expeditions in search of an island of immortals known as the Islands of Paradise. And on the third voyage, which he, which he went on himself, he had a dream about a sea monster destroying his uh, his fleet. Mm-hmm. And uh, as such, he took to, took to carrying a crossbow around with him at all times. And the uh, voyage kind of was, a Joffrey vibe there. Yeah, yeah. And and he the voyage ended up being delayed because they ended up having to hunt this sea monster. Um, and of course, you can fill in the blanks with what that might have been. Maybe it was a a whale. Uh, a shark, who knows? Uh, but he ends up shooting it dead with his crossbow and then dies himself days later. 
Now, Key attributes these details to second millennium BCE Han historian Sai Ma Qin and says that fabrications would have been beneath him, but it might have been uh, added by someone else. So in other words, this account of the emperor's obsessions, it might not be 100% accurate. Like maybe he wasn't hunting sea monsters with a crossbow. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's just alluding to his obsessions. Well, yeah, I mean, that I think that comes with pretty much anything from ancient history. You, always, you usually can't rely on it to be totally accurate, but it will at least usually... Uh, eliminate you as to what ancient people thought. So even mm-hmm. if this doesn't tell us how uh, the first emperor of China died, it tells us what his reputation was. Yeah, and his reputation was one of an, an obsessed tyrant. Yeah, he would he would go on to be like the the prototypical uh, tyrant in Chinese folk tales for generation upon generation. But to follow up on the descriptions left behind by Sima Qin. I think we should go to the the tomb. Yes. So uh, Sima Chen has this wonderful description, uh, which which Qi quotes in his book. Quote, they dug down to the third layer of underground springs and poured in bronze to make the outer coffin. Replicas of palaces, scenic towers, and the hundred officials, as well as rare utensils and wondrous objects were brought to fill the tomb. Craftsmen were ordered to set up crossbows and arrows, rigged so that they would immediately shoot down anyone attempting to break in. Mercury was used to fashion imitations of the hundred rivers, the Yellow River and the Yangtze, and the seas, constructed in such a way that they seemed to flow. Above were representations of all the heavenly bodies, below the features of the earth. Whale oil was used for lamps, which were calculated to burn for a long time without going out. Amazing. That is awesome. So first of all, I love the idea of it being rigged with Indiana Jones-style booby traps, crossbows set up to shoot people who break in. And it makes me wonder... Is this ancient description of the tomb of Qin Shi Huang uh, like the thing that inspired all of the ancient booby traps tropes in our archaeological adventure stories? I know. I wondered the same thing because it's become such a trope uh, in fiction and fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons that you would have, uh, you know, spring loaded booby traps uh, on your tombs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of this, I can't think of a an actual uh, historical or, or alleged historical account of some sort of complex trap like this. I know there were defensive measures uh, in some of the Egyptian tombs, mm. but uh, I'm not sure about crossbows. Yeah, I mean, I can think of mimetic traps mm-hmm. so that they will, like, tell you, hey, don't break in here because if you do whatever, insects might eat away your flesh or something terrible is going to happen to you. Yeah, or some sort of false false chambers, false tombs, uh, misleading corridors, etc. But this is, if you break in, the crossbow will shoot you. Yeah. And maybe just the idea of the crossbow is enough. Right. Right. Maybe the real trap there. Maybe it's also a mimetic trap there. It's just the reputation of having spring-loaded booby traps to shoot you down. Yeah. And, of course, some of you might be thinking, well, how long would a spring-loaded crossbow trap last? You can you can get a little technical and start wondering, well, what is the – what kind of crossbow would you have to construct to last the longest, to, to be viable the longest as a defensive measure? But at the same time, if history has shown us anything, a, a tomb – stands the greatest risk of grave robbing in the period of time immediately following the internment. Not to say that modern people don't sometimes come across and and desecrate and disturb ancient tombs, but most of the time they were raided long, long before any modern people got there. 
The second thing I really love about this description is the idea of the mercury waterways. So yes. the idea is that there was this map on the floor of the tomb that was a model of China or at least of the of the Qin Empire mm-hmm. and that it had rivers and seas made of liquid mercury. That seems so amazing and so impossible, but – Liquid mercury may actually have been used on occasion in the ancient world for ritual or decorative purposes like this. And I want to come back to this idea later in the episode when we talk about some of the chemical and physical analyses of the tomb. And so fabulous was this tomb that the Chin didn't even mention the army of terracotta warriors. Right. The, the thing that has captured the imaginations of not only uh, uh, the Chinese, but but everyone in the world uh, since uh, these figures were unearthed in the 1970s. Yeah, totally. And we're going to get into that unearthing a little bit, as well as I think the most amazing fact in all of this, and that is that we know where the actual tomb is. It has been located and it has not been breached. It's difficult for me to believe that a mystery this thrilling remains undiscovered in the modern world and that maybe we will decide not to disturb it and not to find out the answers. Yes, it's it's like this weird uh, kind of Zen exercise yeah. for uh, for archaeologists and just for the world in general. Here is this secret place that has stood undisturbed for for millennia. And uh, and we're not going to disturb it yet because we are not ready to do it. We are not capable. We are not worthy to to open it up yet. And we'll get into the reasons and the arguments around that uh, you know, later on in the episode. All right. I think we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will discuss some information about the tomb complex. All right. We're back. You know, if you want a, a good overview of – of the the terracotta warriors, uh, I, I do recommend the How Stuff Works article on the topic. It was actually written by uh, Kristen Conger. Oh yeah. So I'm going to run through some of the stats that show up in that article just to give you a good overview. Uh, the number of years it took to complete uh, the the and I put complete in quotation marks because it seems that some areas were not quite completed, but a good 36 years were spent creating this necropolis. That's more than half of the emperor's life. Yeah. Uh, the number of laborers, around 700,000 were required. The size of the necropolis, we're talking 820,000 square feet or 76,000 square meters. A depth of 100 feet or 30 meters. And the estimated number of terracotta warriors, uh, in, in the House of Works article, it's cited at 7,000. I, I keep seeing estimates of upwards of 8,000. Yeah, I think that is the the, the more recent estimate. And then the number of weapons, uh, 40,000. Worth pointing out that while the terracotta warriors in the, in the tomb complex were made of clay, they were armed with real weapons. That's right, real weapons. So these are fake warriors armed to the teeth with deadly state-of-the-art bronze killing implements. And that includes swords, spears, lances, axes, and crossbows. Crossbows with working parts, like the triggers and catches that had to be made out of metal. And and actually, so they were arming people who could not fight with real weapons that could be used to kill. And that's fascinating to me. Like, Tens of thousands of bronze arrowheads ready in these quivers of clay warriors. What does this mean? Why not fake weapons for the clay soldiers? 
It is mind-boggling, isn't it? Because, uh, again, on one level, you, do, you don't want to just dismiss something like this as, well, I guess ancient people did this. This is just how they treated their their uh, their emperors and their rulers and their pharaohs. This is a massive investment of resources. Yeah. It almost signals to me that whatever role the emperor believed these terracotta warriors would play, uh, you know, if it was a protection role in the afterlife or something like that, it implies a very literal kind of thinking about that role. It's not as if you need these uh, these warriors there for some kind of symbolic meaning or as a sort of gesture to the spirit world, you know, like to, to get the magic working. Mm-hmm. It seems like, no, they literally needed weapons that worked and that they could fight with. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, to think of it in terms of the way that the – the the, the, the uh, necropolis was laid out where you had the the sort of garrison terracotta troops uh, to the west, the actual tomb to the east. Mm-hmm. And then the west is also the direction in which you had uh, essentially the perceived uh, enemies of the emperor, conquered peoples, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a sense, he was he was building the unreal army to protect uh, his remains from his enemies. Now, I should also point out on, on the, the topic of the, the armory, essentially, you know, all those weapons just sitting there in the tomb. Uh, why wouldn't somebody come in and take advantage of those? Well, they did. Uh, in fact, in the third century BCE, uh, rebel leader uh, uh, Chiang Yu breached the outer portions of the necropolis and there he stole weapons. He smashed soldiers and he set fires. But the primary goal here was likely vengeance because Yu's allies had suffered terrible losses against the Qin forces. But I do want to stress that this was uh, this was a breaching of the uh, the outer necropolis area, not the tomb itself. Right. The inner tomb and the pyramid mound in the middle of the necropolis apparently remains undisturbed. Yes. Now, uh, I was just reading about research published in 2012 in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory that found by analyzing the metal in all these weapons of the necropolis, uh, particularly the arrowheads, that they were not mass produced in a single assembly line process, but that they were made through what's known as cellular production or now in the in the modern uh, car sense of it, Toyotism, huh. <laughs> uh, where independent and self-sufficient teams produce whole finished products. And that's, that kind of goes in line with some stuff I've read about how the terracotta warriors themselves were made, which were that they were, you know, contracted out to these independently working master craftsmen who had teams of sculptors and workers also working underneath them. And then the master craftsmen were responsible to these foremen who worked for the emperor to show that their work was of good quality. And they'd have to, like, sign their name on it in a secret place in case it wasn't very good. And they had to answer for their crimes of uh, shoddy warrior design. Huh. Interesting. Toyotaism. I, I had no idea. Oh, and here's one final note. Uh, the weight of a terracotta warrior was generally around 330 pounds or 150 kilograms. It's worth noting that the size of the actual warriors uh, varied depending upon the status of the individual. So your foot soldier would be shorter than your general figure. Yeah, and a, and a common thing pointed out about these is that these are not mass-produced, mm-hmm. uh, just like w- w- the other stuff we were talking about. It didn't come off an assembly line. They all appear to have these little individual differences. Yeah, they they are very now. Sometimes the the descriptions of the process they they do say sort of assembly line, or they seem to to reference that. And certainly they were assembled. Yeah. Uh, they are composed of parts. 
there was a sort of methodical approach to this. Mm-hmm. Like these, this was, this was a mega project. There was an understanding that we need to create an army of, of artificial troops. Mm-hmm. But they didn't just have one stamp mold to right. create each of these warriors. Based on what I've read, they, they were apparently made out of clay stacking methods. I think there might have been molds for like the general head shape, but mm-hmm. then the, the heads were further refined to have more individual detail after they were stamped in a mold. Yes, yeah, I believe so. But this brings us to to the next question: who who is doing the stamping? Who who built all of this? Who built the tomb? Well, who built the warriors is probably a different question than who did the like tomb construction mm. stuff. As far as the tomb goes, I was looking at a study from 2016 in Nature Scientific Reports by Ying Ma et al. called "Tracing the Locality of Prisoners and Workers at the Mausoleum of Qin Shi Huang, First Emperor of China." And so the study finds diverse contingents of workers by looking at evidence from two different worker burial sites associated with the mausoleum complex. I don't know if we'd mentioned yet that a lot of the workers appear to be buried on site with their work. Yes, indeed. And this is, of course, something we see in other uh, ancient peoples as well. If you have a, a large workforce building your secret tomb, well... There's only one way to really make sure it's secret, right? Right. So the two uh, burial sites are the Li Yi site with uh, with a count of 146 bodies and the Shan Ren site with a count of 14. So the workers buried at the Li Yi site appear to be locals, people of the Qin population, whereas the workers buried at the Shan Ren site appear to be prisoners who were forced to work on the construction of the mausoleum. And there are differences because the skeletons at the Li Yi site uh, consumed, quote, predominantly millet and or domestic animals fed millet. And they were buried in a much more orderly way, sometimes with like grave goods, such as bronze swords or ceramic pottery. Meanwhile, the workers at the Shen Ren site, uh, they appear to be buried haphazardly in a mass grave. They're all jumbled together. Some skeletons are still bound in iron shackles around the legs. And this shows that, of course, they were probably prisoners. Evidence shows that the Shan Ren workers had a much more mixed diet than the Li Yi workers with less domestic animal protein and possibly more wild game protein which seems to suggest they were, you know, hunting to supplement their diet. Mm. And uh, the authors also claim evidence that the Shanren laborers were likely taken from populations in southern China, uh, to quote from their abstract, quote, This pattern of decreased millet consumption is also characteristic of archaeological sites from southern China, and possible evidence the Shanren prisoners originated from this region, possibly the ancient Chu state located in modern-day Hubei province and parts of Hunan and Anhui provinces. Further, this finding is in agreement with the historical sources and is supported by previous ancient DNA evidence that the mausoleum workers had diverse origins with many genetically related to southern Chinese groups. So it looks like prisoners and and freer workers are being brought together from different sources. Maybe the locals are more likely to be the freer laborers Mm -hmm. and prisoner labor is brought in from conquered states elsewhere. All right, well, let's move on to the discovery or rediscovery of the Terracotta Warriors. Uh, because as we mentioned already, there, there was some vandalism and destruction in the years Im- immediately following uh, Chen Shui Huang's death. But then we forgot about it. Then yeah. the, this place was just forgotten for century upon century up until 1974. 
Because up until then, it was difficult to say how much truth there was in any of this legend uh, or how much legend there was in the truth regarding the tomb of China's first sovereign emperor. Uh, but this was the year, 74, that some well diggers managed to dig down into the chambers of the terracotta warriors. And then uh, just national and international interest sparks all around it. Right. So as previously mentioned, uh, this portion of the tomb showed signs of, of raiding and destruction on a few different occasions uh, as early as five years after the emperor's internment. As we mentioned earlier, the tomb itself is in the west and the pits are in the east as if protecting the emperor against his enemies. Right. It's like an outpost almost. Yeah. Uh, all of the terracotta warriors are – it's like they're sentries out there away from the tomb itself to prevent people from getting to it. That's right. Now, we have we have these various pits. We have four main ones. Uh, pit number one, as it's uh, called, contains the warriors. 7,000 or 8,000 strong. You have archers. You have foot soldiers. Then you have Pit 2, which contains chariots and cavalry. Pit 3 contains high-ranking officials and, war, and a war chariot. Pit 4 is an empty area that was perhaps uh, left unfinished. Mm -hmm. And then you have various other pits. I've seen a figure of, of about like 600 containing uh, additional, mostly non-military statues and relics, entertainers, animals. Uh, this includes 11 acrobats and entertainers with an, an exceedingly high level of detail, perhaps the earliest example in China of human sculpture with like a real anatomical degree of realism. But to stress yet again... Though this is part of the necropolis, this is not the tomb itself. Right. Yeah, and it, but at first, this was the, this was the only portion, uh, that they were able to find. But then archaeologists pinpointed the actual burial chamber about a kilometer away from the warrior pits. And as of this recording, it is still unbreached. Right. It's this giant ancient pyramid mound that's now covered in earth. We know there's a chamber under there and nobody's gone in. That's right. It, it's essentially a man-made mountain, uh, though it's it's much weathered by the ages at this point. Uh, but underneath there, you have you have a tomb. It's about the size of a football field and it has this uh, this double wall construction. Now, Key, uh, who I mentioned earlier, he points out that uh, human sacrifice was still in fashion for funeral rites at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, consorts and concubines who had borne no children uh, were expected to, to join the emperor in death. And then, as you mentioned, various laborers and craftsmen uh, likely joined him in order to protect the tomb's secrets. Mm -hmm. uh, yet at the same time, clay effigies were increasingly favored over live humans uh, for funeral rites because ultimately they cost less. They cost less, they last longer, and they can be mass-produced to fill a tomb with numbers that mere mass slaughter would struggle to equal. Yeah, I've seen this explained in terms of essentially trying to preserve the actual workforce of an empire. Yeah, like, it's like the emperor cannot take We need take all everybody. these soldiers, yeah. Yeah, I, like we realize you need some military support in the afterlife. Mm. However, we do need to keep the actual army intact – uh, or the, the the real empire, the the living empire, is going to fail. Then again, don't let this distract you from what an amazing investment and sacrifice it is to spend so much time, energy, money making all of these funerary goods and 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 structures. This is an amazing investment. It is. It is amazing. Uh, I, I don't know how how wise ultimately, but an amazing investment. 
All right, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the actual tomb, what we know about it, what uh, what what our best scientific tools are able to determine about it, and what's keeping us from just going in there and seeing for ourselves. All right, we're back. Now, earlier we mentioned the description of the tomb by the ancient Chinese historian Sima Qin. So what were some features of Sima Qin's description? Well, uh, he mentions that they dug down into a layer underground, mm-hmm. that they had uh, a bronze outer coffin. They had replicas of palaces, scenic towers, the hundred officials, uh, rare utensils and wondrous objects that were all brought in to fill the tomb. And then he talks about the crossbow booby traps mm-hmm. that are set to kill anybody who tries to loot the tomb. And then he talks about mercury being used to create this map of the ancient Qin Empire, the, the, the map of China with the waterways, rivers and seas filled literally with liquid mercury. Now, we discussed earlier whether or not something like that would be possible. I think we should get into more detail about that kind of thing now. Okay. Well, surveys, scans, and probes have established that the great cavity of the chamber is still intact. So that means it it hasn't collapsed and it hasn't filled with water, plus traces of mercury, unusually high levels of mercury. Uh, yeah, which could very well be due to that description or maybe to something else. Regarding that mercury, I, I mentioned I was going to come back to this. According to a 2015 Archaeology magazine report, archaeologists have known for a while that some ancient Mesoamerican tombs sometimes contain a powdery mineral ore, uh, this ore form of mercury known as cinnabar. But since 2015, an archaeologist with Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History named Sergio Gomez has found something even more amazing underneath these Mesoamerican structures. Traces of liquid mercury in a series of chambers buried underneath the 3rd century feathered serpent pyramid of Teotihuacan. So like Qin Shi Huang's supposed map of Chinese rivers, Gomez thinks that the liquid mercury in the ancient chambers uh, under Teotihuacan was supposed to form a sort of map, a, quote, representation of the geography of the underworld, the mythological realm where the dead reside. This silvery liquid was probably used to depict lakes and rivers. Really interesting parallel there, except the idea here is that it would have been not of a real geography, but an imagined one. And liquid mercury would seem like the perfect waters for such for such rivers, you yeah. know, because there is something inherently magic seeming about liquid mercury. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I've got to imagine somewhere out there, some really rich nerd has a secret map of Middle Earth where all of the water is <laughs> liquid mercury. This is like a Facebook executive in their secret hidden garage room. Yeah. And, oh, you know, I should point out, too, that this would have been important for Chen Shui Hong because he his uh, his birth year was associated with water and he always wore black. uh, I've read because that was the uh, the 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 color associated with water. Interesting. Now, in in the case of the Mesoamerican map, I wonder if if this is true, if Gomez's interpretation is correct. I would have naturally thought, okay, maybe the the quicksilver, the liquid mercury, is supposed to represent the kind of magical water of another of another dimension. Mm-hmm. 
but it, it just as you point out, I mean, it does very naturally kind of simulate the idea of flowing. It's something that looks like it's moving in a very still state even. And so Gomez has found lots of artifacts in these underground chambers since 2003. The author of the Archaeology magazine piece notes that the humidity of these underground chambers might have helped to maintain the liquid properties of the mercury, as well as preserving some of the contents of the buried rooms like plant seeds and maybe even human skin. But there's another article I want to talk about by the science writer Philip Ball. He wrote this interesting piece in Chemistry World in January 2015 called Flowing Rivers of Mercury, which investigated this claim that the burial chamber of Qin Shi Huang contained this map of known China at the time with the rivers and lakes of mercury. So here are a few things that Ball says in his article. He points out, as you mentioned earlier, Robert, that in the 1980s, Chinese researchers, they did this soil testing, right? They tested the soil of the burial mound above the unopened tomb to see how much mercury it had in it. And the mercury distribution in the soil was very uneven. So first of all, above the tomb, there is, as you said, way more mercury than the surrounding soil. The surrounding soil had an average of about 30 parts per billion of mercury. Meanwhile, quote, the average above the chamber was 250 parts per billion and in some places rose to 1,500 parts per billion. So that's a very significant difference. Uh, and there was another survey in 2003 by, by a different team than the one from the 1980s that found the same thing. You'd have very high concentrations of mercury both in the soil and in the uh, vapors between the grains of soil above the tomb. That's totally uncharacteristic of the general soil in the area. But the different levels of mercury at different parts of the tomb have led some to hypothesize that it reflects an underlying arrangement of mercury underneath, which could indicate a map. So the article by Ball cites the archaeologist Qingbo Duan of Northwest University in Shan. So uh, Duan says, quote, there is no unusual amount of mercury in the northwest corner of the tomb, while the mercury level is highest in the northeast and second highest in the south. And Ball points out that the mercury hotspots on this map very roughly match the locations of the two great rivers of China, the Yellow and the Yangtze, as they would have been mapped with respect to Shanyang, the ancient Qin capital city. So Duan claims that the distribution of the mercury soil concentration over the tomb sort of matches the location of actual waterways in the Qin Empire. But then on the other hand, Yinglan Zhang, an archaeologist at the Shanxi History Museum in Xi'an, he kind of doubts this and he tells uh, Ball, quote, the mercury will have volatilized into nearby soils during this long time, so it would be impossible to show up detailed information that we can connect with particular rivers or lakes. And I think that kind of makes sense, right? If you're talking about a chamber filled with liquid mercury mm -hmm. 2,000 years ago, it seems like it would be kind of odd that it would really be projecting a very, like, tightly detailed pattern on the soil above it. It seems like you'd get a lot of mixing, right? Yeah. But since we haven't opened the tomb, we don't know. This yeah, is still it, a mystery. It remains an open question, yeah. More, more on that. Uh, remember how we mentioned that Qin Shi Huang longed for immortality. We talked earlier about how he charged his alchemists and wizards with coming up with an elixir of eternal youth that would stave off death for him. And what could stave off death in ancient China? Well, we already mentioned the idea of mercury. One Chinese legend tells of this man named Huang An, who was able to live for 10,000 years by eating cinnabar, 
<laughs> yes, Cinnabar. We meant not Cinnabon. Right. Though, though I've heard I've heard you can live for ten thousand years on an exclusive diet of Cinnabon. I'm I'm not sure if that actually adds up. We'll preserve your colon for ten thousand years. <laughs> uh, yeah, Cinnabar is not something you want to eat. It is mercury sulfide. Uh, perhaps for this reason, the, the reason of this this legend, Qin Shi Huang was said to drink wine and honey spiked with cinnabar, which ironically, as we said earlier, probably helped bring him to an early grave. And it could have had a severe impact on his mental health. Uh, you, you look at some of the uh, the symptoms of mercury poisoning and you get things like mood swings, mental disturbances. Chasing uh, sea monsters with a crossbow. Potentially, yeah. Or uh, I believe sometimes there are, it's reported that uh, one of the symptoms is a, a like a reclusive element. And, mm-hmm. there, and we already touched on him sort of removing himself from public sight at one point, probably out of fear of assassination. Uh, now, Qin Shi Huang was by far not the... I don't know if by far is the right modifier there. He was definitely not the only figure in history to poison himself with mercury. Oh, no, not not by a long shot. In fact, I, I feel like we could come back and do an entire episode just on the historical use of mercury mm-hmm. and the, the many cases of mercury poisoning that result. I mean, in some cases, due to consumption of mercury, mm-hmm. but other times just to just due to the use of mercury and improper ventilation in areas where you're crafting things with it. Well, I'm getting right into that now. So later in Chinese history, for example, in the Song Dynasty of the 10th through 13th centuries, bodies were sometimes soaked in mercury to prevent them from rotting. This would be a preservation practice for funeral services. But there's no apparent evidence of mercury being used as a funeral uh, preservative as early as Qin Shi Huang's tomb was built. So the researchers don't don't think that has happened here. Uh, one more thing about the toxicity of mercury. It was no easy or safe thing to get a hold of liquid mercury in the ancient world, even though they could do it. They could make liquid mercury, but it wasn't a safe thing to do. So in the ancient world, all liquid mercury was made from cinnabar. That is, as we've said, mercury sulfide. And you'd extract the mercury from it by roasting it in a hot oven with access to air. This means the sulfur in the compound is released and forms sulfur dioxide in the air. And the pure mercury boils off as a vapor that can be captured and condensed. Don't try this at home. Yes. Please don't do it. Ball writes that since mercury boils at 357 degrees Celsius, Qin-era ore kilns could have easily reached the temperature to process cinnabar into mercury. But there's this big downside. If you're trying to do this in an unsealed container where the workers are exposed to the fumes, the workers are going to suffer a lot of harm. This is dangerous, nasty, harmful work. And it wasn't until later in the Han period that the chambers were closed and that the dangers of mercury fumes were actually well understood. But all of this danger from the mercury fumes does make me think about the alleged booby traps in the tomb. Oh, yes. The crossbows set to fire automatically at looters and defilers. Could toxic liquid mercury in a tomb also function as a kind of chemical booby trap? I mean, it makes sense, right? Because even if there was a certain amount of consumption of mercury uh, that was taken as a a medicinal element, uh, they would have still been able to realize that many medicinal elements, uh, if taken in excess, can be potent poisons. Yeah. So Ball thinks it's unlikely that the mercury was a deliberate design choice as a booby trap uh, because, as he says, the toxicity of mercury fumes was not really well understood until the Han period. But then again, you still have to wonder. And as a side question, I think 
if you were an ancient ruler and you wanted to lay chemical booby traps in your tomb to sicken or kill people who tried to loot it, what would be the best chemical available to ancient peoples to do this? What what would work the best? What would last the longest, maintain its potency or volatility over the years, be the, the most bang for your buck for poisoning your tomb? That's a great question because it seems like a number of the, the naturally occurring botanical poisons that they would know of, these would be things that – you would you would probably want to burn them uh, perhaps or or somehow create a a paste and smear it in the right place mm-hmm. um, but these are more s- subtle techniques than what we're talking here like you, you wouldn't it would be difficult i would think to create just a, an atmosphere of death in the room and you th- that would enable someone to walk in and just perish yeah i'd be interested here's one option what if it so you've got a sealed off tomb and maybe you leave something in there that maintains its potency because it'll stay basically dormant until it gets exposed to fresh air from ah. somebody opening the tomb up. Well, then that that is a case where I could see the mercury uh, becoming a prime option. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Let's see. Uh, all you chemistry nerds out there, please let us know what is the best way to chemically booby trap an ancient <laughs> tomb. Uh, one last question about the liquid mercury. How much liquid mercury could conceivably have been put in the tomb if you want to go to maximum allowable estimates? Well, that Chinese archaeologist that uh, Ball quotes, Duan, he put together an estimate about of the maximum amount of mercury that could have been produced by the refining process available at the time during the Qin era. And his estimate is about 100 tons. Wow. Or about seven cubic meters or 7,000 liters, which is about 1,850 gallons. Is that a lot or a little? I don't know. So <laughs> I, I looked at, I tried to, <laughs> I was like, how can we map this to volumes you can picture? I, I tried to phrase it in terms of hot tubs. So I looked up hot tubs. The first hot tub I found in a Google search was billed as a seven person hot tub. It looks like a normal hot tub and its water capacity is 380 gallons or 1450 liters. That's roughly one fifth of the mercury estimate. So if you're trying to picture this ancient Qin maximum mercury processing capacity, think of a little less than five hot tubs full of liquid mercury. Oh, wow. Of course, now I can't help but imagine five actual hot tubs of liquid mercury within this tomb, you know, because where else would you want to hang out as uh, uh, the the undead uh, ghost of, uh, of an ancient emperor? Hot tub suicide machine. Yeah. Uh, so I come back to the question, is that a lot or a little? I, don't <laughs> I guess that depends on what you're trying to do with it. Like if you are trying to fill the waterways of a football field sized map of mm-hmm. China, that might not be as much as you'd want. But at the same time, five hot tubs full of mercury, that sounds like at least enough to have some fun with. Yeah, I mean, it's more mercury than because uh, I, I think back to being a kid. My, my dad was a dentist, and he would occasionally show me a bead of, of mercury, mm-hmm. you know, because it was you know, it was used in amalgam fillings, and it was you know remarkable and magical to look at. But just to imagine, uh, like a, even just a hot tub's worth of that of that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, it it boggles the mind. Disclaimer again, especially for our younger listeners. We are not recommending you play around with toxic liquid mercury. It yeah, can kill not you. Not at all, yes. 
But ultimately, we probably just aren't going to know exactly what the deal with the Mercury, uh, what the deal with the Mercury with the tomb is unless we go in there. But that, are we going to go in there? That's that's right. I mean, researchers have been carrying out remote sensing scans. Uh, this includes uh, panchromatic remote sensing, color infrared remote sensing, and hyperspectral remote sensing. And they've been doing this since around 2002. Uh, five years after they started, researchers concluded that a, a 30-meter-high building is buried in the vast mausoleum. Uh, the building buried above the main tomb had four surrounding stair-like walls with nine steps each. And according to National Geographic, an archaeologist working on the site told the Chinese press that the cham- this chamber above the tomb may have been built for the soul of the emperor. Interesting. So let's get into the basic case for excavation and the case against, because uh, that, that's where we often wind up. On one hand, you're like, well, get in there. I want the mystery yeah, solved. Want I want to find know. out. Yeah. And then you might think, well, just leave it alone, too, because it's a tomb, right? Uh, not that humans have ever been shy about disturbing an ancient tomb, mm-hmm. uh, be, because we, we were talking about this a little off off mic. I, I can't think of another grave site, and I'm talking anything from a peasant to an emperor that we know of. Uh, that has not been disturbed, that's anywhere near this old. Yeah. Like, this is a, an anomaly. Yeah, I can't think of one. Yeah, I, I, I might be missing something. It's a difficult thing to research because whenever you do uh, various searches for um, unexposed tombs or undisturbed tombs, generally that is a story about the disturbance of said tomb. Like, we finally got it. Yes, you are correct about that. But, I mean, it, it's funny how, like, you, you do want to understand more. You want to learn about what's in the tomb and everything, but... You have to recognize that there is, uh, even just from a scientific standpoint, a destructive element to unearthing. If you look at the terracotta warriors themselves, if you've seen them, they're not very colorful, right? They're just clay figures. Yeah, they all have this kind of grayish brown look to them, right? But the terracotta warriors were originally painted. Yeah, yeah, they were hand painted uh, with black hair, green uh, um, and white outfits, pink faces, black or brown eyes. And some of this was lost due to fire or ransacking. But the initial uh, 1,087 soldiers unearthed, they were painted. They were painted when they were unearthed, but not for long after that. That's right. Uh, Exposure to air caused the paint to turn an oxidized gray. And on top of that, the shift in environmental conditions brought in moisture and mold. And then when they wiped off the mold, the surface dried out, causing the paint to curl and fall off. Right. So even this act of unearthing these things to preserve them so that the modern world can enjoy the the beauty of the terracotta warriors, it destroys them in the process. Not fully destroys them, but it destroys some aspect of what they're like. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Obviously, you've got this separate question of, you know, respecting the wishes of the ancients and, you know, how much should we pay attention to their desire not to be unearthed? But then also just in the scientific spirit, if by unearthing a thing we know we're going to cause damage to it, are we hurting our own ability to understand it better in the future? Indeed, so many of the just the concerns of archaeology uh, itself are, are summed up with this site. So some of the cases for excavation here just broadly are you can protect the site against grave robbers, which were a threat once and could conceivably be a threat again. Uh, so maybe we should... Get in there and protect the stuff before other people uh, finally get fed up and go in there uh, instead. Okay. All right. So that's one idea. Another is you want to protect the site against geologic threats, sure. such as seismic activity. Granted, it's held up so far, but 
who knows what the future will bring. Right. It could be an earthquake, could collapse, uh, it could start leaking and fill with water. Yeah, there could be some effects from from climate change that might impact uh, uh, the site. Because one of the things to keep in mind is we're talking about preserving the relics that are in there. Well, they are preserved now. It's just to what extent uh, can that preservation hold uh, based on, uh, you know, uh, BCE technology? And then finally, of course, we would want to get in there to study and preserve important historical artifacts. Right. Because we don't know what's in there. We don't – all we have are, are ancient texts and, uh, and, and and rough scans to go by. Uh, to really answer these questions, we would have to enter it. And as we've said, it's such a thrilling mystery. Yeah. But then again, of course, we should acknowledge the case against going in. Uh, that now we've mentioned all of the damage that could be caused, but we should take a minute to linger on the idea of respect for the dead, right? Yeah, I mean – Sure, he was a tyrant, but he was an important tyrant. And and then there is a, a Chinese stress on ancestors and respect for the ancestors. So I think that might reasonably be playing a role as well. Then again, do we have an inconsistent ethic on this kind of thing? Because we've unearthed the mass graves of workers yeah. who worked, <laughs> you know, archaeologists have dug their bodies up and they've, uh, you know, they, they dig up all other kinds of bodies. Are we making an exception in this case because this is a rich and powerful and historically significant person as opposed to a poor and not especially historically significant, at least not individually person? Yeah, I think I think you end up having some, you know, some complex opinions uh, interplaying with each other in trying to figure out, you know, you know, why we're holding off. But but more important than this idea of respect for the dead or respect for an ancient ruler are just the, the hard scientific facts of disturbing the tomb. And that is yeah. that, for one hand, if we excavate there, it might destroy the mausoleum itself. But then also, we don't necessarily have the right plans or the right technology in place to protect the contents of this hermetically sealed tomb. Uh, and when we talked about the loss of the terracotta warrior's paint, mm-hmm. uh, essentially we are not ready. It's, 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 it's like we could, we could get there. Yes. You can travel to the moon, but then can you breathe when you get there? Can you return from the moon? It's that sort of thing. We can, we can breach the tomb, but if we're going to destroy <laughs> that, that's it, that's not process, the hard part. Yeah. That's, that's not the hard part, but can we do so in a way that can actually protect the contents? Well, let's ask that not rhetorically, but practically. Does anybody have a plan? Does anybody have a contingency for, okay, let's say we decide to actually open up this tomb. What would we do to the absolute best of our ability to avoid causing damage to it and preserving all of its uh, everything that it can tell us about the past? Well, my understanding is that there's a there's continuing work in this area with various experts coming up with plans and proposals uh, for how uh, the tomb might be explored. Mm-hmm. A 2013 study from the American Chemical Society presented some ground for work for what should be done with quote immovable historic relics displayed in large open spaces like this. Mm -hmm. Basically, you have to recreate the environmental conditions of the unexposed tomb, Uh, similar uh, in ways to how some recently discovered cave habitats, like natural cave habitats with bats and animals and a certain uh, moisture level to them, the way we protect those with airlocks rather than just simply open them up and expose the cave environment to the outside. Mm -hmm. So this particular study said you would need things like air curtains, uh, that blow across the space to separate the environment from the outside environment. 
and also keep uh, heat and pollution away from the pits. You'd also need a, a layer of cool air uh, in the pits themselves to help uh, form a blanket of stagnant air around the relics. Mm-hmm. So you get into this this interesting situation where the the world of the tomb is kind of an alien environment. It's kind of a uh, it's kind of a, a, a lifeless environment, mm-hmm. and you have to. You have to maintain that necrotic uh, environment if you're going to explore it. So yeah. you can end up with this – it's like visiting another world, truly, in, in a, almost in a way that was perhaps intended. This is the world of the grave. This is the, this is the underworld. And you have to uh, think twice about simply walking into it lest the, uh, the creation itself vanish. Yeah, to vary on the theme you were talking about at the beginning, the idea of the – the ancient ruler's tomb as a spaceship to the afterlife Mm -hmm. versus a recreation of the conditions of the afterlife. This is sort of like a third option, right? Which is a literal creation of the world of the dead. Yeah. Disturb it at your apparel because there are also crossbows down there that may shoot you in the face. (laughs) What's your over under on the fact that the crossbows will actually shoot at people who go in? I I find it incredibly unlikely, yep. if not impossible, that there would be uh, live crossbow traps down there. I wonder what's the longest that a crossbow trap would really remain like a, you know, have the have the tension still in the string. I know, because even if you went with a, a metal string, right, that would only, if you went with like a wire uh, situation, that would only last so long. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how long, but it seems like over time the tension would relax or something. Well, maybe one day we'll have the necessary technology to find out. I would personally really mark out if uh, if the first uh, like robotic probe that ventures into the tomb is shot by an ancient crossbow that would just be that would that would really make my day a great day for science yes Hey, so in addition to our regular episode today, we thought we would bring y'all a special treat, which is we were going to have a couple of our excellent Stuff Media podcast host colleagues on, our friends Annie and Lauren from the podcast Food Stuff. Annie and Lauren, say hi and introduce yourselves. Hello, I am Annie. And I'm Lauren. And yeah, we have a podcast called Food Stuff that's about the uh, science and history and culture of food and drink and et cetera. Yes. Wait, what's the et cetera? Things that you eat that aren't food or drink? Ah, uh, we just did an episode about artificial flavors, so. (laughs) Spot on. Yeah, right. We've talked about some weird diets, including eating cotton balls. So that's uh, (laughs) not really edible in my opinion, but – but people do that? Oh, yeah. People have done that. We, it's not one of the ones that we would recommend. Don't, no. don't, don't eat things that aren't food. This sounds it, like, a, like a Jenna diet from 30 Rock. Because I remember yes. she, could, she, could eat pa- she was eating paper, but she could eat as much as she wanted. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> What's that episode called? Uh, that is our fad diet part two episode oh. because there were so many. There were so many historical fad diets. These, and people have been doing these ridiculous things for hundreds and hundreds of years. William and, the Conqueror. Yeah. Most, what, what was his fat diet? <laughs> Not cotton balls? No, his was a basically liquor diet. Uh, oh. <laughs> as much whiskey it should you, as you would like. And he did lose the weight, but he died falling off his horse. Possibly because he was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say, like, he could eat as many swords as he wants. <laughs> He's a sword swallower, maybe. Yeah. And uh, Robert and Joe, you two were on our recent Lunar New Year episode. Oh, yeah. Yes. And we 
it was our first guest segment. It's awesome. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. A little uh, cross promotional uh, magic here, hopefully. But but yeah, we're we're heading into to Lunar New Year. What what can uh, listeners expect from your episode on Lunar New Year food traditions? Uh, lots of lots of puns. Puns? Uh, yeah. The, uh, apparently, all all of the foods that are connected with the Lunar New Year are just wonderful puns. Oh, I remember something about this. And w- when we talked about the food tradition of the rice cake pudding, right, the uh-huh. glut- glutinous rice cake, that it had something to do with the idea of advancement or achievement. It was like a play on words. Yes. Um, I believe it means uh, higher like ascending higher. It sounds mm-hmm. like a word that means that. Yeah. Yes. So we love puns and food stuff. It was right up our alley, all these <laughs> edible food puns. Now, the, the use of uh, homonyms here, this reminds me, when I was in China, I, I can't remember if it was Guangzhou or Nanning, uh, but I, I went to a park and they had all of these sculptures, each one having to deal with a different homonym. Uh, so it's it's very culturally entrenched, uh, the, this this playful use of words. Oh, yeah. Right. One of my favorites is um, fish, which the word for fish sounds similar to the word for prosperous. And so the fish has to be positioned in a certain way, and you can't eat all of the fish because you want to have some left over. Yeah, you want to continue that prosperity. Yes, it's abundance and prosperity. It's such a popular item for the New Year's Day meal that there's a greeting, may we eat fish every year. Huh. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of a of a Chinese Christmas tradition that has popped up uh, that I was uh, that that I learned about uh, just uh, in the past few months, and that is that the Chinese uh, word for Christmas Eve sounds like the Chinese word for apple, and therefore people have gotten in the practice of giving apples on oh, Christmas Eve, sometimes with a little pa- paper Santa Claus face on the front. That is so delightful. I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, uh yeah, there's a bunch of them like like a good business is apparently a homonym for oysters, so you might eat oysters. Uh hmm. the word for shrimp sounds a lot like the word for laughter, so you might eat shrimp. Right. And then you can chain whole whole, whole phrases together. Uh my one of my favorite ones was um if you if you have a dish with dates, peanuts, dried longans and lotus seeds, uh, it kind of forms the phrase to soon realize the birth of noble sons. Whoa. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's unlucky foods for sure. Uh, in, in, in all New Year's traditions, there's stuff that you should eat and stuff that you shouldn't eat. Yeah. And we did an episode on Western New Year traditions. And in our tradition, lobster is terrible luck. Because they like go backwards. Yeah, they crawl willy nilly. They oh. yeah. You want to you want to eat pigs because they root forward. Right. <laughs> but in Wait. Lunar New Year's tradition, lobster is lucky. And chicken. Chicken is another thing. Wait, but crabs move sideways. How, where do they stand in all of this? Uh, maybe they're neutral. Yeah. <laughs> Cra- crabs, crabs are strong negotiators. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that about crabs. Yeah. <laughs> they get those claws out, and you're right. like, okay, I'll take you seriously, crab. <laughs> You also might eat um, long noodles for long life. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm yeah. familiar with this Two tradition. Two yeah. feet long. Nice. That is a long noodle. Now, so I'm thinking about the traditions I'm familiar with in like American culture of eating black-eyed peas and mm-hmm. collard greens and pork products on New Year's. Uh, I-, I wonder, was that inspired by eating certain foods in Chinese New Year's or is this a thing lots of cultures do? Uh, it seems like all over the world people have these kind of lucky foods. And I, I think that probably a lot of the traditions come from when things are harvested. Uh, for, for for example, with, with pigs, uh, pigs are usually slaughtered um, right before 
like 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 right in the dead of winter. So uh, so you've got this fresh pork hmm. that if you you know so it's lucky. Ah, <laughs> 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 yeah, there are a lot of fun ones. Um, apparently, single women will write their number. On oranges, because oranges are also seen as lucky. Sure. And yeah. throw them in the river and hope that love is forthcoming. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty excellent. Yeah. Finds, it, finds its way to their best possible match. Hello, I hope you're interested in catfish because I am one. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get this number? <laughs> you're catfishing me. There's a lot of jokes that could be made there. <laughs> oh, no, no, I meant the river. I was being too literal. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I just took it in a it, different direction. It works on multiple levels. It does. It does. All right. Well, hey, well, thanks for coming on the show here and chatting a little bit about uh, Lunar New Year traditions. Let everybody know, though, where they can find this episode uh, of Food Stuff and where they can find future episodes of Food Stuff. Oh, goodness. Well, uh, you can download our show just any anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. We also have a slightly awkward U- URL for, for y'all. It's uh, shows.howstuffworks.com slash Food stuff, or you could find us on social media. Where uh, just just Google food stuff, we'll pop right up. Yeah, you're fine, Google people. Yeah, probably wherever you can find stuff to blow your mind, you can find food stuff. Yeah, we exist in the same family. Mm-hmm. Now I've got to ask you. Obviously, people should go look up your Lunar New Year episode, and if they're interested in Chinese New Year and all those traditions, they'll get that. But do you have a couple of favorite episodes to recommend if people want to see you at your best? They've got one shot at food stuff. Which episode do they go to? Oh heck. Uh we we just we just recorded one on ketchup that I'm very fond of. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. It goes with everything. Oh, doesn't it? Uh well little mm, it does not go on hot dogs. <laughs> Lauren's got strong opinions. No, that's true. I do. Ketchup yeah. on hot dogs is the devil's work. <laughs> but ketchup goes so well on corn dogs. What is it? What is the difference? Uh, is it just the breading I don't know. difference? Uh, uh, sausages go with mustard. Sausages mm-hmm. do not go with ketchup, in my opinion. I'm a very peaceful person. I never have violent <laughs> thoughts or impulses. But when I see people putting ketchup on a hot dog, I want to kick them. Like it's just wrong. <laughs> but Noted. Super Bowl uh, like crock pot uh, weenies. That's basically ketchup weenies and grape jelly, right? Isn't yeah, I, the, I don't go for crockpot weenies. Well, I'm not a, into it. That's a sauce, though. That's oh, At, at that point, true. it's not a condiment. It's a sauce. And okay. I'll give that special consideration. It's upgraded. It's Think yeah. leveled up. Proper accompaniments to uh, sausages and hot dogs would be sauerkraut. Yes. Would be mustard in its many forms. Absolutely. Uh, could even be things like raw onions or pickles, pickle relish, not ketchup. Where do you stand on mayonnaise? I I stand on that being kind of gross, but <laughs> maybe in an acceptable way if nobody's looking. Annie hates may- mayonnaise. I yeah. have four foods I don't like, and that is one, mayonnaise. Mm. What are two of the other three, but not the third, <laughs> so they can go to your show to okay. find out? Dr. Pepper is number one. Oh. Gross. And don't like all that prune extract or whatever it is? <laughs> yeah. I love Dr. Pepper. I know, but people seem to love it. If I, like... Somebody played a trick on me once where she switched my drink with Dr. Pepper, and I did immediate spit take everywhere. Really? So it's for real. It's serious. And um, watercress. Huh. Watercress? What's wrong with watercress? I wish I liked it. Well, I think it just It's not supposed to stand on its own, though. It's just... Well, like if it's in a sandwich, if it's on a sandwich, mm-hmm. I will notice, and I'll be like, nope, I can't do this. Huh. It's very sad. I want huh. to like watercress, but the other one... We have done an episode on it, so yeah, you'll have to <laughs> check it out. Ooh. Maybe you're just wired differently on that because I feel like watercress should just fade into the background. It's like a, right. a, a bit player in a scene that shouldn't draw your attention too much. Right. But if it does, then 
yeah, I could see where that could be a problem. It yeah, is. What is it? It's just crunchy. Tastes a little bit like grass. A little bit, little bit peppery, sort yeah. of. To me, it tastes like soap. Like very strongly of soap. Oh well, maybe it's kind of like the cilantro. Right, effect, sure. Right? I love like an cilantro. actual genetic oh. thing that's mm-hmm. making you go. <laughs> Relevant to um, stuff to blow your mind, audience. I will say we do have an episode on garlic as an entire vampire segment. Oh, oh and yeah. we have an episode on tomatoes that has um, mentions of werewolves. Oh, excellent. So. Those are two of my favorites. And personally, I love pineapple episode. Oh, yeah. It's good. It's a little bit depressing, but I think that most of our great episodes are a little bit depressing. Right. <laughs> Food is terrible. Imperialism, <laughs> right? Oh, wow. Oh, yay. Yeah. Well, go listen to food stuff. Learn a little bit. Get depressed. <laughs> laugh, love, learn, cry, <laughs> eat. Eat. Yeah. Drink. All those things. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. Thanks so much for coming on. All right, so there you have it. Uh, a, a fun, just mind-blowing topic uh, that ties in nicely to our celebration of Chinese New Year. If you would like to uh, learn more about Stuff to Blow Your Mind, explore past episodes, be sure to visit StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the old episodes, as well as blog posts, videos, and links out to our various social media accounts. Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other to let us know topics you'd like us to do in the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.